As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. This week's podcast is brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. Stay tuned to learn more about BTE's tune-up services. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome to or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we often discuss Chet Dragon, Jim Rod Cap, and all the latest developments in Sportsman Drag Racing. This week, a little bit different. We're not going to talk about any of that. With open enrollment currently available within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we are dedicating this week's show to Elite and exploring what may be available to you within it. Now, Earlier in the week, we caught up with four of our current members, James Rutherford, Jeff Rigney, Jim Oliver, Neil Hale, and we learned about their unique path and experience within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. Now, if you have been a longtime listener of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, you know that we've done some past episodes in which my co-instructors within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, Kevin Brannon and Justin Lamb, have joined me for some Q&A sessions to provide a little bit of insight to some of the, the knowledge and experience that This Is Bracket Racing Elite has to offer. And this time around, we were planning for our open enrollment period. And Kevin actually said, 
wait a second, we're approaching this wrong because we, we being Kevin, Justin, myself, we're not the best part of Elite. The community is the best part of Elite. And if you listen to uh, the previous episode with those interviews from four members of a community, that's what they said too. So what we wanted to try to do was to highlight the community aspect of This Is Bracket Racing a little bit. And we could talk about that until we're blue in the face, but I think it's better to just provide an example of what it's like to be inside This Is Bracket Racing Elite. So what you're about to hear is actually a full-length member call that Justin, KB, and myself hosted just earlier this week. We had roughly uh, 40, 45 current members of This Is Bracket Racing Elite join us on this call. Now, in these member calls, we typically open the floor to our members for discussion, for questions, for hot topics, and just kind of have an open forum. Now, Justin and Kevin and myself, we lead and, and moderate the discussion, but as you'll hear, it's very much a community forum. Now, combine the three of us, instructors, we have a lot of experience, but we don't assume that we have all the answers. And that's the coolest thing about Elite in its current stage. We're surrounded by literally hundreds of smart racers who share a similar goal. So odds are that even if Kevin or Justin or myself don't necessarily have all the answers, someone has the answers, the experience that you're looking for. Now, within these calls, the subject matter goes literally anywhere racing-related, right? The call that you're about to hear, for instance, was tech-heavy. We had a lot of suspension discussion, torque converter discussion, a lengthy uh, talk about trying to diagnose inconsistency in a couple of our members' cars, and more, with some strategic and reaction time discussion sprinkled in as well. Now, if you've considered joining This Is Bracket Racing Elite, this episode should provide a little inside baseball, so to speak, to some of what our members have access to. And if you're not interested in joining This Is Bracket Racing Elite, that's fine too. I think that this discussion will be beneficial and hopefully enlightening, at least on some level. So with that, we will jump right into Monday's This Is Bracket Racing Elite member call, again hosted by Kevin Brandon, Justin Lamb, myself, joined by 40 plus members of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. Here we go. Right, joined by Justin Lamb, Kevin Brandon, and at current, about 30 of our favorite This Is Bracket Racing Elite members. So, um... We'll get into, this is a little sneak peek at what our Q&As within This Is Bracket Racing Elite look like. So hopefully we'll be having some great discussion as we go on. But as an introduction, let's talk just among the three of us first, guys. Like, Give me a little bit up to date, up to speed on your 2019 season. KB, I'll start with you. All right. Well, I guess I'm kind of transitioning somewhat because I sold my blue car, sold the motor out of the blue car. I'm trying to get it to where I could fix my Monza up and, and have it because the way a lot of these races are structured, I like the one-door car, the one dragster. As far as races, I'm running a lot at my local track here, I'm currently leading the points in there, and we got four races left, so I'll be there a lot. 
this weekend we got SFG at Piedmont, so uh, following some of them, and then of course spring fling at Bristol and all. So we got a lot about halfway through the year. Got a lot of good races coming up. Looking forward to. Yeah, no question. Justin, what's going on out west? Uh, not a whole lot here recently. I I went to Chicago and Topeka for the those two national events, and I've been off ever since. Probably like six or seven weeks, and uh, just getting a ton of maintenance done. I had to put fresh motors in and things like that, and. Uh, now I'm headed to Sonoma Divisional, which is a double, and then uh, Sonoma National Event followed by Seattle National Event. So it's uh, three weeks in a row, and in between the two weeks, we're staying out there. My family's actually coming with me, uh, Janine and the kids, and uh, we're going to make like a little trip of it in between the races. So we're looking forward to that, but other than that, same old out here. Sounds fun. Stock and super stock at every event, I assume? Yeah, and I'm bringing uh, the Copo that Kyle drives. Uh, Pete's going to run it at the Sonoma events as Kyle's going to be working the events. Kyle's going to come and run it in uh, Seattle. Nice. KB, I throw it back to yours. Like, I don't know from a competition standpoint. I think I tend to agree with you. And I'll just say, like, wheelies in a Monza sound way more fun than burnouts in a drag strip. Yeah, I'm actually wanting to try to get a little bit of that wheelie calmed down. I'm going to try to four-link it and try to calm it down, make it a little bit better bracket car. I think that'll be a little, it'll still do some well stands, I'm sure, but I, I want something a little bit more predictable. That ladder bar car, you never know what it's going to do. I don't know, man. You made it a spectator sport at the million. Yeah, but it also cost me a set of willy bars and uh, knocked me out of the race for that one. So, so what about you, Luke? You coming off a big win this weekend. What's your plans? How, how's your season looking? Okay, so uh, my personal season started off great. I headed out west to Vegas. On the way, I runnered up a couple of bracket races in Noble, Oklahoma. And then the first weekend in Vegas, I runnered up the national event. So those aren't wins, but that's a pretty solid start to the season. It's pretty much been significantly downhill since. Second round of the Spring Fling Million, I kicked the rods out. Really hadn't recovered from that. Was down probably, I don't know, four or six weeks without racing at all got it back together and then um just hadn't been able to put much together since car's been fine drivers been lacking at times didn't do much good at the sfg 525 or at the hunter grander at byron but uh it did start to come back around the last weekend i did win the divisional event in chicago and full transparency that's the first time the last wind lights come on in over a year so that felt really good i mean uh in fairness like we haven't raced as much as i used to and i I think I've run it up six times since my last win. So it's not like I've just been awful. But yeah, it was nice to see that last win like come on. So that was cool. Hopefully it's the kind of things to come. Yeah, I look back at your numbers and what and round by round seemed like the car was pretty good. Seemed like you was driving pretty good and hitting the tree well. So looked like you really strung a few rounds there together and built some confidence up. I was really happy with the way I drove the finish line. My car was amazing. It's funny you can attest to this because of the way that you like to go about super class racing. I think my car was pretty good the first three rounds, but I never made it to thousand foot wide open. So it was difficult to know exactly what I was going from fourth round on. Once I got those run completion figures, yeah, it was nasty. Like it was within a couple of thousand. So what I thought I could go each round. So that helps with the exception of the final hit the tree good. And um, yeah, I felt like I was seeing the finish line. Well, so things fell into place and, and to be completely frank, like five of my seven opponents made, pretty bad runs beside me you know like uncharacteristically bad runs so that always helps I, I was pretty excited about it. i looked at numbers it seemed like the car was like between 612 614 to the eighth mile and then all of a sudden out of nowhere you went like 609 i'm like that's my boy right there that's yeah i like to see yeah it, the car was really good so yeah that was by design <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. We got some stuff going in the chat. How this normally works is um, we kind of open the floor to our members. So um, what I would like to see at this point is if you guys have a topic of discussion that you would like us to address, we would be more than happy to, uh, to kind of throw things your way. So if I have any volunteers to lead off, you can put something in the chat. You can just raise your hand here and I'll see you. And that's what I like to see. We'll throw it right to Mr. Rutherford up in Canada. James, what's going on, buddy? Came off a pretty good weekend last weekend. Uh, yes, you just did. got home actually uh, a couple hours ago. So I wanted to get your guys' take on bumping in versus rolling in. I've always been a 15 to 1800 RPM bump, 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 bump. I feel that suits me well, but there's an awful lot of top sportsman guys rolling in and I see a lot of dragsters rolling in. So I wanted to get everybody's take on what their thoughts were on that. Okay. Good stuff. Staging procedure in general. Uh, I'll throw that to, uh, to Justin. Yeah. My opinion is, and it sounds kind of dumb, but I feel like I almost do something like in between, like I definitely bump, but me personally, I'd like to roll in on like what I would say, like a deep pre-stage, if that makes sense. So there's not a long, a long way to go after the pre-stage. But like comparatively speaking, like I've seen some people when they stage and they bring up the RPM and they like pump the brakes like as hard as they, and the whole car is jerking and bouncing. And I, I, that's not me. I do bump in, but I try to do it so the car isn't moving, if that makes any sense. Like I don't want the car bouncing. I don't want the car jerking around. I want it to be smooth and get in. I mean, I guess. What kind of RPM do you stage on, Justin? What's that? What kind of RPM do you usually use when you're when you're moving in? I'm similar. I'm 16, 1700, somewhere in that range. When I drove our blown dragster, it was a little higher to get it to stop loping. Kevin can attest to that. But other than that, uh, yeah, I'm probably 16, 1700. But I guess, like, I guess what you could say, if you watch me driving, I'm pumping the brakes. But if you watch my car physically moving in, I'm going to guess it almost looks like just a really, really slow roll. Even though I'm pumping, I just try not to make it jerk. That's the biggest thing for me. KB, anything to add? Oh, uh, yeah. For me, I, I'm like, Justin said, I don't like the bumping in. I don't like the constant rocking and my head going forward and backwards. A lot of people do There's different ways to do it. You can, I see people barely turn the pre-stage on and then their first initial bump is a big bump and then they go into the smaller bumps. I either like to do it that way or a lot of times I like to back into the, in the beams and turn the stage light off. That way I know I'm right there on the edge and I ain't got to do a bunch of bouncing to get in there. I like that personally and I do it at an idle. I don't bring mine up at all. I just... I like being real close after that first bump or either backing out of the stage lot and then very small moves and I'm there. So you'll back into pre-stage? Is that what you're getting at, Kevin? Yep. After I do my burnout, I'll roll through and I'll back up and turn the deep off, then go to the stage and then bump to the stage light goes off. And then I'm right there on it. One or two good bumps and lights on. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I, guess, I guess the reason I'm asking is what I find myself doing is I, I probably am a little bit too aggressive on the bumps. At 1,800 RPM in a top sportsman car, it's, it's jerking around quite a bit. So I've found myself a couple of times, stage light comes on, and I'm in the middle of my bumping, and I get one more, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, that's why I don't like the rolling either. When you're set up so tight these days, that rolling, I mean, that could – uh, easily a few thou right there by rolling. I, I like the bump, and anytime you roll, I think it's hard to get a consistent lot when you're doing that. Yeah. The other thing, Go ahead, Justin. Well, the other thing from, like, a bottom ball perspective is I think that there's times when, when like, you might want to take, like, a bump or two, 
If you're just like a rolling in and staging, you can't do that. Well, like if you're trying to pick up React, let's say, and you've been 15, 15, 15, and you want to be high double O, you might take like an extra bump, like whatever. There's a lot of racers that do that. Well, rolling, you have no idea how far you went. Bumping, you kind of know what your bump is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I just think there's more precision in bumping. I think you can stage consistently at a really slow roll. But I just think like there's more human error involved because you have to kind of react to the stage like coming on to stop the car. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it would be significant, but then we play a game of thousands. I just think that the bumping is, is a little bit more precise. And I'm like you, I bring mine up and that's just the way that I learned how to do it. And to be completely honest, that's probably because I came up kind of racing junk in that if I didn't have it up in RPM, I didn't have enough trans brake or didn't have enough pressure for the trans brake to hold or yeah. the carburetor wouldn't deck when I decked it. You know what I mean? So I just got in the habit of bringing it up. But now if, when I try to stage at idle, like I feel like the car is not moving. Like I like having the, the suspension kind of loaded and feeling that tension with each bump. But I think that's just a, a personal thing. I don't think there's necessarily like, that's a better way to do it. Like Kevin just said, he, he prefers to stage at idle. And with today's technology, like there should be no reason that you can't stage at idle. Okay. All right, good stuff. We had another question from Bob Welsh. Bob, let me see if I can bring you in here, and I'll let you put that into your own words. You with us, Bob? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I know Bob just recently uh, debuted a, a new dragster, right? Exactly, and I'm having a lot of tire shake issues. Okay. So what can we try to help you with? I, we came from a hardtail, so I mean, we the only adjustment we ever had really was uh, you know air pressure. Now, I mean, we thought we would just put a four link on, you know, build a four link, and then the thing just goes right down the down the track. I learned about you know the center intersect this weekend. I had no idea about that. People were talking about the anti roll and not not having any preload on it, or you know, it's dangerous ripping at the stripe. I mean, there's just a lot of things going through my head right now, and there's a lot of different opinions at the track, and I'm, I'm just, I just need to see what you guys think. Okay. I'm confident you're in the right place. I'll weigh in here a little bit, but Justin, I think my experience is more with the swing arm setup and single shock, and I think largely we're accomplishing the same things, but I know specific to an anti-roll and a conventional four-link, you've probably got a little bit more hands-on here. Do you want to give Bob maybe like some starting pointers or a starting point to kind of get things rolling? There's so much to it. Um, just out of curiosity, Bob, did you buy the four link like as a kit from a certain manufacturer? Does that make sense? Yeah, like, yeah it was a S and W kit. Did, did you, did you get any kind of like baseline setup from them by chance or no? Yeah, we did. And then um, it, it was, it was a mess. I mean, I was, I was shaking them uh, 60, 70 feet out. That seems really far. Okay. Um, yeah, how yeah. fast is the car? Uh, it should be a 450 car. Okay, so it's pretty fast. Well, there's so many things I think that can look at that can cause this. Like the first thing is, is I think the bottom bar angle is where to start. And, and also the bottom bar angle and the pinion angle are the two things. So do you, what do you have your pinion angle set at? at right now, we don't. I don't know exactly what it is. I think when it was set up, it, it might have been three degrees. I know the bottom bar is five degrees. We haven't messed with that at all, but 
we moved the top bars up two holes to kind of be more in line with the bottom bar. Everybody said it looked real aggressive down before, and it seemed to help a little bit. So my opinion on a 450 car with two shocks in the back is that five degrees, I'm assuming you're saying five degrees downhill, correct? On the bottom bar, like towards the front of the car, it goes down. I think you honestly need to have that closer to like one and a half or two to get started because my guess is if if you had the exact same engine combination, everything, what you gain with the four link is it's basically hitting the tire too hard. So it's trying to get too much traction. So to get rid of traction, the more you level out that bottom bar, the more it's going to allow the car to get wheel speed, so to speak, like, like, like slip the tire a little bit, not hook the tire as hard if you want to call it that. And so the two things that, I would start with first is try to get that bottom bar leveled out some, get it to like one, one and a half degrees at the most two degrees downhill. And then uh, the, the next thing would be to uh, make sure your painting angles, right? So I'm curious what Luke and Kevin run, but like I typically run mine like two, two and a half degrees of pinion angle. Um, are you guys close to that? Yeah, it should be close to that. What about Luke and Kevin? Same thing. Yeah. Mine's just slightly downhill. I don't, I don't run a bunch on mine. Just to give you a little insight too, Justin. He has a uh, 15 inch tires on there too. I think that that's and he may have to take a little extra bite out for what it, for that size wheel on there. For that size tire, yeah, yeah. 450 car on a 15. What is it like a 3315 or something? What's what's the tire? 3315 Hoosier. Yeah, that. And did you run a hardtail going that fast? No, this is a new engine combination. Okay, my guess is to be honest with you you have like a combination of, of problems. It's probably not necessarily anything directly four link related. I mean, it's, I mean, it's all one big project, right? But I'm going to guess like right now, like going four fifties on a 15 inch wheel is really fast. Like I'm going to venture to say like most 450 or faster cars have a 16 inch wheel and tire. They have a little bit stiffer sidewall, a little bit bigger tire, more tire on the ground. Um, so it could be a combination of, of a tire issue being too small it could be an issue of the shocks you know one thing that uh kevin actually brought up he he can speak on this more but kevin brought this up at some point about shocks being mounted upside down there's certain shocks that don't matter which way you mount them but there's certain shocks that can't be mounted upside down it'll mess up the valving where the shock won't work correctly you could have a problem with that potentially i i really think that it's something that you need to just start from square one with the four link obviously you know get and if nothing else Get your bottom bar at one, one and a half degrees down and uh, get the pinion angle like two, two and a half degrees. And then I know this sounds very corny, but maybe look at uh, you have some friends that have a similar cargo and similar ET and try to get the spread on the bar similar. So the front and rear spread make it similar to at least get you to like square one. If you're still having a tire shake issue at that point, maybe it's time to look at shocks and or tires. Sounds good. The other thing is that with that preload on the anti roll, I mean, what's your take on that? I run preload on my anti roll. So if you want like my exact thing, like I run, I basically take the slack out of the top right bar, which is where you normally put preload in. So there's a lot of people that actually run preload in that bar, like a flat, two flats, whatever. I literally just take the slack out of it and I preload the anti roll a turn and a half. And, uh, I've done it not only on my dragsters for years and years. I've done it on, uh, I mean, I've even used the same idea on my door cars. Uh, I ran my Cobalt with no preload on the anti-roll for a long time. 
And a few years ago, I actually switched to running just a little bit of preload on the anti-roll. And I'm kind of a big fan of it. Like I think that uh, it keeps the rear end more free than having the four link in a bind and uh, just using the anti-roll to control the twist of the body. And it, it's worked great for me. So I, not that that's right or wrong. It's just what I've learned. And, uh, and I've used the same uh, race tech brand chassis for years. And, and the owner there, uh, Russ, he's a pretty big proponent of the preload and the anti-roll also. That's probably kind of what got me started on it. And I've just, I've used it forever. Bob, I actually just, uh, while Justin and Kevin were talking, went back and watched the video that you posted to our Facebook group. And yeah, that's violent. Like that's bad. And I just, I think we could argue. And as you mentioned, you talk to different people and you'll get different opinions as to where that four link should be set and what specific angle of the bottom bar for that combination. But I'm just telling you as somebody that over the years I've been in every hole that like the, my American cars have, you're not going to get that out of that with the suspension adjustment. Like there's not that much adjustment there. So I think it's a kind of a whole combination thing. And I don't think from what you're telling us that you're that far out in left field with the actual four link setup. What I would say from experience, I I would agree like this combination will be far more forgiving on a 16 inch wheel, but just in like general terms, this sounds like the reverse of what you would think, because obviously you just went from a hardtail car to a suspended car, but for as much power as you are putting to this, you want to run basically the stiffest shock that you can. Like you want to be all the way stiff and just watching your car. Like, I feel like it's got too much movement in terms of the, the rear ends trying to drop out of the car. Like the shocks are too loose. So to like get a baseline, I would stiffen everything way up, probably go up a little bit in tire pressure and go down and launch RPM until you can get it down the racetrack. Well, what are you leaving okay. now? We went everywhere from, we started at 5,200 and then we went down, um, that, that launch right there in the video was, uh, 4,500. Okay. I would go lower yet. Like I don't really see any reason to launch over 4,200 in a bracket combination with that type of power. And again, like if it takes it being down at 3,600 for it to act right, like that's what it'll take. Like I wouldn't be afraid to keep going down there and stiffening the shots. I think that's where you'll see the most gain initially. And to Justin's point and Kevin's point as well, I I think uh, ultimately like a a 16 inch really for as fast as you're going, preferably a beadlock, but that tire compound and the stiffness of the sidewall, like it's just so much more forgiving that I think you'd see a big difference there as well. Um, I think there's definitely minimal strides to be made in the suspension setup, but I think if you left everything else alone, like you'd never really get it where you were happy with it just to another four link. And and a side note, like I'm a pretty big proponent. Like if you have friends that have a combo that works and like their wheels fit your car or whatever, before going and buying wheels and tires and all of the above, like try to just borrow a set. I mean, make a run on their wheels. And, uh, and as most people know, like I'm like a diehard Goodyear guy, but like Kevin and Luke are both Mickey guys and, and I've seen it firsthand, but you can bolt one of those Bubba series tires on just about anything and go right down the track. So if you want to go down the track tomorrow, Put a big bub on that thing. It'll go right down. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. They, I don't want to sound like the big Mickey Thompson proponent, but they band-aid a lot of suspension, combination, imperfection without question. Like that, That's what I've seen. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. Let's throw this over to Tracy up in Michigan. Let me see if I can 
activate Tracy here. I cannot unmute Tracy. That's, that's not going to work. I'm not really sure why. Can you hear me? You want me to just read the question? Oh, there yeah, you go. Hey, we can hear you, Tracy. Here you go. Yeah, so thoughts on air cleaner versus an air pan in an under, under a two-inch towel hood. What's the pros and cons? I've, the only experience I've got with this, Tracy, was on my Corvette, and that wasn't a cowl hood. That was a scoop. But the first Corvette I had, I was dead set that we had to seal off the carburetor to the hood scoop. And actually, I caused my chassis builder a ton of work in doing so because it was, I mean, it's quite the undertaking, as I'm sure you know. And I got frustrated with that thing at one point, and literally, David Tatum helped me. We cut the air pan out of in the pits at Bowling Green one day. And I didn't really see any difference. It was not the problem. Um, and since uh, on my newer car, we didn't do an air pan. And I went back and forth between a air cleaner in the opening of the hood scoop and an air cleaner on top of the carburetor. Because the main concern in those is actual like airflow and direction and to the point that it can create like a suction where it's trying to suck fuel up out of the boosters and or the vent tube. But I never really saw a significant uh, change there, like in O2s, in terms of performance, in anything. So at least in my experience, I don't know that there's a significant difference one way or the other. Justin, have you seen anything going back and forth, or have you had the opportunity to go back and forth? Yeah, I've had two instances. I had the opposite situation on my super gas car, where I built an air pan for mine, and I felt like it definitely improved mile per hour and at 990 but again it was with a hood scoop the only other experience i've never actually had a race car with a cow hood believe it or not but i did have like on my 70 camaro where i ran i wouldn't even say it was an air pan but it was like a like a uh like i'm gonna say an air cleaner base does that make sense like one of those radius bases that you could put a a uh, air cleaner on, on above it but i would just run like the air filter base only and i'd run on my 70 camaro in stock and it was absolutely worth a couple hundreds in a stalker. I guess it must have just improved the, the airflow going up over like the edge of the carburetor, that big radius bend. It, it kind of improved the airflow and it was worth a couple hundreds. But other than that, like my Cobalt, I've always had an air filter, I mean, like a scoop pan on it with a hood scoop. But again, it's all hood scoop based. I've never, I've never had a, a cow hood. So would one be any more consistent than the other? I'm, I'm still fighting a little bit of inconsistencies between, um, mostly at the 330, but I can see it propagate from the 60 foot. So the 60 foot may be off by a hundredth, but then I've got two at 330. And it seems to be that I slow down after a hot lap. Well, so I enter, I usually enter mod and top at our local races and they run back to back. So top is always going to be a much warmer run. And I'm wondering right now I have an air cleaner with no air pan. And I'm wondering if I'm just getting hotter air underneath the hood for that pass. That I can absolutely see that being the case. I mean, you got all that engine heat off the engine. And then, I mean, as, as goofy as this may sound, but I mean, let's just say, like, I'd be curious to know, like, what the physical temperature of your air cleaner was, let's say, on the first class run. Like, let's just say it's 100 degrees. And on the next run, you got all that added engine heat. Now is that air filter 120 or 130 degrees. So now when it's pulling air in, it's the, the air going into the engine is 30 degrees warmer, you know, or, or it's going through a filter 30 degrees warmer, ultimately heating the air up. Like I could see that causing some inconsistencies. So I don't know, uh, but I don't know how realistic that is. I, I've never tested that, but I'm just thinking out loud, like 
I mean, obviously more hot air going in the motor is going to slow it down. Yeah, it's That's an interesting my, thought. My, my coolant temps, my trans temps, trying to watch them like a hawk. Obviously, I can't get the um, the trans temp as close as I can the water temp with the, with the fan, but I'm still still struggling with that, and I'm leaning towards something like that. I got an air pan built. I'm going to give it a shot, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, that's an interesting thought, but I would think that the uh, the cowl scoop might magnify. Like, you'd think an open hood scoop, like, it kind of overcomes that because it's getting so much clean air no matter what, whether right. it's sealed or not. I could see that. In, in fact, if any of you members on the call, like, if you've got any experience with this, if you want to not something in the chat, we'll turn it over to you because obviously this isn't something that, that Justin, Kevin, or myself have dealt with directly. Thank you, Tracy. Let me... Um, well, Let's throw this over uh, Corey Shulman, if I can uh, get Corey on here. Corey, I'm going to you. It looks like you've got a uh, travel limiter, like stock suspension type question. Let's hold on for a second. I, I think James Rutherford is maybe has a response to the air cleaner. Hood oh, sure. Go ahead, James. My wife has a 940 Pro Car that has a 66 Mustang with a 6-inch cowl on it. I tried those cone style air cleaner, like there's, there's very little clearance between the hood and the carburetor. <clears throat> so we tried the cone style filters with a little bit of a kind of a snake looking thing going down into the lower that slowed it down by probably 500. I did run the velocity style with just the screen on the top, like just a little, a little velocity scoop with a screen on the top of the dominator. Well, we're back to no air scoop at all. There was no gain. And I also built an air pan. There was no gain with the air pan. So maybe we were fighting the fact that we've only got an inch and a half between the, uh, the hood scoop and the, and the carburetor. But we found this, the most consistent was no air cleaner on the Dominator and just free air from underneath the hood. I know it sounds crazy and it is hot air, but there was no, there was no increase or gain or, or better consistency with the pan. So just, just for what it's worth, I mean, you're probably, probably good to try it, but we didn't really see any difference. Yeah, kind of similar to what I'd seen on the open air scoop. Corey, can you uh, can you weigh in with us? You there, Corey Shulman? Okay, we will move on. Corey, if you get here um, or get to where you can uh, hear us, let us know. Let's throw this over to Rafa. We had a little uh, need a little south of the border influence here. Rafa, what you got for us, buddy? Thank you, Hello. I am building a 1967 Pontiac Fiber. And I am. I think. Well, I I have a question on here, and I I made this question on a previous live chat, and um, I don't know how to choose the uh, front springs because I am using the uh, the LSX motor that I used to have on my Alter, so it is an all aluminum LSX motor, and I ordered some. I mean, I I order injects or submit the like original springs for that car, but the car doesn't move. So the, as the, the motor doesn't wait so much, so I don't know how to to know the uh, the spring rate for, for my car with this uh, coming, I mean, with this motor. And this is a factory front suspension, not a strut or anything on the front, right? Yes, well, well it is just like the, the tube suspension, but I, I want to have it like stock suspension, right? Gotcha. Justin, this is in your wheelhouse. I'm going I'm to defer. To be quite honest with you, everything I've ever messed with with stock suspension, I, there's one company I call. I literally, uh, I've mentioned them before, but there's a company in Minnesota called Fast Shocks. 
And it's, uh, you know, Mike Manns, I'm, I'm sure Luke does, but Mike and Randy Manns, they uh, stock super stock race from Minnesota. And uh, you can honestly call him, tell him what kind of car. He's the first gen Camaro Firebird's the same. Right. He'll probably want to know if you don't know it, but how much the vehicle weighs on the front of the car. So you need to somehow weigh the front, you know, just put the front of the car on scales or, or you can put the whole car on. If you have four corner scales, just get the front weight. And uh, honestly, like every time I've ever dealt with them on this, I mean, they've got it like spot on. Just for example, I have a friend, uh, his name's Jeff Debbie's out of Twin Falls, Idaho, 67 Camaro with a, it's a, I don't know what it's like a 400 inch small block, 434 small block, something like that. But he went to an aluminum block, same deal. He put the aluminum block in, now the front of the car sat real high and it really wouldn't move. It had like no stored energy whatsoever. So he calls me like, hey, uh, how do I figure out what weight springs I need? I said, I don't have a clue, but if you call Fast Shocks, they'll hook you up. And that's, I mean, springs are cheap, number one, like are inexpensive, I should say. And they're equally priced to everybody else, but they have the knowledge to tell you exactly what rate and what length you need. So I know they did it for him on his 67 Camaro, and, and I have no doubt that they could get you straightened out on your fire. Okay, thanks. So Fast Shocks is the name that you say. Fast Shocks, yeah, but I'll... I'll Send you the uh, website here in the live chat. Just let me search it real quick and I'll, and I'll shoot it over to you. Okay. Say, thanks a lot. And then I have another, well, it is just for curiosity. I put some new front runners on my dragster last year, but they, they are all gone. So they start to show the, uh, I don't know how to say that in English, but you, you, you see the little white things that is no good to see in a tire, right? <laughs> you so, see the cords. Yes, the cords. Okay. So I don't know how how long they need to last because these are just 240 passes. I mean, it is just to know if I have an issue of alignment or something like that in my car. You had 240 runs on the front runners on your dragster and you're seeing cords? Yes. Yeah, I would say that's got to be some type of alignment issue. Like I've seen guys run the same ones for 10 seasons almost. You know, I mean, they just shouldn't okay. wear much. Perfect. Okay, so I, I will check that tomorrow morning. And uh, because I saw that and it should be an alignment issue. And then thanks a lot for the um, recommendation on the all-in shocks. My car was, I thought my car was very good on 60 feet. It was varying 0 0.015 on 60 feet all day and the last event that i had in guadalajara which is a very bad track just very 0 0.006 thousand in a uh, feet. so it went it went well I'm, I'm up here fantastic i would just imagine rafa that this is this might be stereotypical but i would imagine that if you say it's a bad racetrack that's far worse than what we think of as a bad racetrack oh, is that fair yeah. to say Yes, yes. <laughs> so if you have seen like the no prep guys in Oklahoma, okay, they don't know nothing about no prep. You, <laughs> Mexico in order to know about no prep tracks. Right, no. so but when I go to the States, I just need to do nothing to my car in order to stick with the track. Okay, but when you come to Mexico, you will be messing with your cars here. So <laughs> it's a really bad track. So with all these uh, NHRA people fussing about 65-35 prep, you would love to have some 65-35 prep down there? <laughs> right. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you should come here. I mean, if you want to have my car, you, you will feel the track. It is no good. <laughs> right.
<laughs> uh, I think we got Corey back online now. Corey, can you, you got me now? Are you there? Yeah. Oh. All right. What you got? All right. So uh, I have a tendency to like click to not access my phone on every app that I download. So apologies. But, uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, I have a question. So during springtime, I have a door car, a G-Body Monte Carlo, small box Chevy. And I always wanted to do wheelies until I started doing wheelies. And then the wheelies got out of control. Small explanation on the cards. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a small block Chevy, probably makes 710, 720 flywheel. I got strange double adjustables. It's a factory suspension, but it's a all TRZ, like tubular rear end and whatnot. And the, the wheelies were getting absolutely out of control. Like we're talking like four inches from the bumper. It was fun, like the first couple times out. Like it was cool. But yeah, I got to witness a couple of those. They they looked fun, but I could see the yeah. I could see the issue, right? Right, right. And so now that the tracks are hotter and whatnot, the wheelies aren't as bad. But when it gets colder outside, the wheelies are gonna come back. So opinions on spending a bunch of money on some shocks because I posted a question out there to a couple of local forums, and everyone said, "Go buy Afco big guns. Go buy this. You know." $1,200 to $1,000 just for the shocks or put the travel limiters on them that cost, you know, a couple hundred bucks. What is, uh, are the limiters a hindrance? Do you spend the money on the shocks or what's the, uh, I mean, uh, I'm just curious on opinions there. I mean, I've got an opinion, but I, for some reason I feel like yours would be better. Believe it or not, I, I was just trying to find a picture, but I'll have one somewhere, but what you describe, I had an 85 Monte Carlo. It was my very first bracket car ever when I was just before I turned 16, I got it. And, uh, but mine had a, a big block. But anyways, on to the question. Uh, I think that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish with the limiters. I really do. I mean, I'm all about having nice shocks. Don't like, absolutely. And I think that there's a benefit to having nice shocks, especially like, I don't know how your car lands, but like coming down from the wheelie, especially have good shocks because it's not going to bounce. I'm going to guess that uh, when your car comes down from the wheels, does it bounce quite a bit when it lands there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – I got them all the way tight, but it's still pretty – it bounces pretty good, yes. So so here's the thing. If you went to a more expensive shock, which I'm going to guess you can get a set of shocks for $1,000 roughly to do what you want to do, to, to and, it, and they would be able to catch the car better. So it would have multiple benefits. Like – if you're trying to just calm down the the wheelie overall, like the height of the wheelie, then I think that you could use the limiters to fix it. But if you're trying to, if you want to fix like the whole package, then I think you probably need shocks because not only could you control the wheel stand better, but you could also make it land smoother. It's my belief that the smoother it lands and the less bounce, the more consistent it's going to be. So it kind of just depends. Uh, like big picture, I think you're going to ultimately need shocks. But if you want to fix it, just the wheelie only at this point, and then uh, go for the limiters. Okay. While you're at it, would you just upgrade to – because right now it's a spring and shock setup. I mean, if I'm going to go all the way, would you just do a tubular control arm and do a strut setup? No. Okay. Uh, I think that there's and, – and it's just purely my opinion, but there's so much more – like, so let's say you go to, like, a tubular that, – that aftermarket, like, tubular front suspension, right? And that now you go from having, like – a really big, fairly long coil spring to like this tiny little spring and tiny little shock has very little stored energy, doesn't have much wheel travel on the front. It just limits so much stuff. And I, and I think that with like a stock suspension style, like a, 
a back half car, you need that front end movement to for it to transfer weight. And like, I mean, I know you want to calm down the wheelie, but you don't want to eliminate the wheelie. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people like, man, I put all this aftermarket front suspension on and I lightened the front end 50 pounds by taking all the stock stuff. But now it did a bigger wheelie before. Well, that's because it had stored energy in those big springs that you don't have anymore. So I think honestly, what you have is just fine. Now you could do some things like I know, like, I think like on my stalker, I used a company called Global West, something like that, where they made a, I don't know, it's like a better top control arm to, to help free up the front end to make it looser. Like you could do stuff like that. But as far as like to go to like the full tubular with the strut, I, I don't necessarily agree with that plan, I guess. Awesome. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. The one thing that I'll add on top of that, Corey, is just keep in mind that whichever direction you go, whether it be limiting travel or technically stiffening the shock, just keep in mind that you do want the adjustability from the heat to the cool. Like you're going to need all the freedom that you have now in the summer to keep it planted. You obviously just want to control the, the wheel stands in the spring and the fall. So don't be afraid to, to free it back up next summer whenever, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. He'll go back and forth. Yeah. Like put an adjustable limiter on or an adjustable shock. Don't just, right. don't just put like a, like a permanent limiter on because you're going to regret that for sure in the summertime. And maybe I want to take the wheelies back because sometimes they're fun. So maybe I want to do big wheelies again. By all means. <laughs> I'm a huge I, I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Uh, let me throw it over uh, to Alan Wilson. If you are there and available, you had a unique question, something, uh, something that we haven't touched based on recently. Hey, thanks. So, for those who don't know, my dad uh, runs a Cobalt and Comp, and my brother and I have split time uh, running our Chevy 2 and Superstock. I'm in a position where I'm getting ready to close on an old house that I own. I'm going to take some of that money and be stupid and buy a race car. So I thought uh, I might get some opinions from you guys, you know, turnkey, roller, any success stories or principles you guys have. I thought it might be a fun topic to uh, throw out to you guys. So. What are you looking for, Alan? Like a uh, super- probably super stock car. Okay, <laughs> we can go any which way. You got any thoughts, or experience, KB? I just look for. Um, I like to have a car that that's got a good chassis under that that has neat wiring. Um, those are the big things, I guess. I would want. Not real sure on a on a super stock car what I'd want to look in there, but for a dragster wise, I'm looking for something that's clean and well took care of, has nice neat wiring and. Uh, has the up-to-date ignition and things like that in it. I just try to make sure it's in, in good shape and up-to-date. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add. Like, I tend to look for the things that are valuable to me that I can't easily do. So, obviously, like, quality craftsmanship, you know what I mean? Name brand stuff. Like, I have a buddy here that just, just comes to mind. Like, he doesn't care about anything as long as it looks cool and, like, it's got flashy paint. And he'll way overspend on something that's got flashy paint over not buying, you know, like a really nice car that might be a little bit rough around the edges, if that makes sense. Of course, I come from my Vega mentality, too, that was a really nice, good working car that looked like the biggest pile of junk at the racetrack. You know what I mean? So you know what I value. As far as like rolling versus turnkey, I think it just kind of depends on where you're at. Like if you've got an engine combination that you're really confident in or an engine builder that you would feel more comfortable going with then it's probably more beneficial to just buy the rolling car and finish it out the way you want it. But if you don't necessarily have that in place or you stumble into something where you're really comfortable purchasing the car turnkey, like it's a proven winner or you know it's fast and you trust the people that it's coming from, 
then I wouldn't necessarily be against that either. Justin, you got anything to add specific to the super stock element of it? Yeah, I think specific to the super stock element is just you need to figure out what class you want to run. So, I mean, obviously there's regular super stock, there's GT, there's modified, there's big blocks, small blocks, what kind of cars you like. There's so many, you can run, you know, you know like uh, like with GT, you know, you can pick like an old car with a new engine combo or whatever. Uh, like Like right now, I feel like what I think is like a really cool direction to go is to put like a Copo motor. It, oh, let's just say, okay, let's, let me rephrase that. Not necessarily Copo. I don't know if you want a Chevy or a Ford or whatever, but put like a late model factory engine. Like, so out of one of the factory cars, either a Copo, Cobra Jet or Drag Pack and putting it in an old body style car. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Like if like someone on a budget, whatever, like it's really not even on a budget, just a good working car. It's really hard to beat like a third gen Camaro. It's what like Rampy has, Stennett has, Iacono has like that body style, like a third gen Camaro, but put like a late model uh, like Kobo motor in. I think it's a very cool combo for your Chevy guy. So you can take like, I'm sure most people here are familiar like with Fletcher's Kobo Stalker. It's got like a 350 LSX small block in it. Well, you can put that in a third gen Camaro and then you run what's called factory GT instead of regular GT. And right now today, what's cool about factory GT is there's very, very few of them out there. So you don't have to worry about heads ups anything like that, you can drop the motor right in and, and not have to fight the, you know, a lot of times like these GT cars, you know, you'll go to an event or, you know, especially something like Indy or where there's class, you know, you might have five, six guys in your class and you have to have a very competitive car. So we're in this factory GT class, you can almost get like a stock motor from GM, like a GM crate Copo motor, plop it in a third gen Camaro and go race and have a very, very good competitive car. And uh, the other thing that I like about the, the factory stuff is the they're like real race motors like for instance like a 427 is like it's like 14 to 1 compression from the factory where if you take like that same third gen camaro and put some like older in it might be like nine or ten to one and not dial as well and not be as efficient of a race motor so i don't know if, if i was building something today that's what i'd build that's what my buddy phil and i just built uh he did all the work by the way but we put a 427 cobalt motor in a cobalt same thing it runs factory gtc I kind of wanted a bracket car. He wanted a super stock car. So we're going to just both use it. But uh, that's exactly what we just did. I think it's a really cool combo. Yeah, that's that's a really cool car, by the way. And uh, we actually talked about a third gen Camaro because we've got a 305 that I think would go in it to run super stock. And then you could also actually said the same thing. I think uh, there's a, a few people there, at least one up in, uh, in the Indy Divisional that had a, a Copa motor in a factory GT car. Yeah, it's cool. That's what I would lean towards, I think. Honestly, and, and, and the third gen Camaro is like, I don't know if it matters who builds them or who, I have no idea. All I know is I feel like every time I see one go down the track, the thing is like on the bumper, never spins the tires. Like, like Iacono is the king of that. Like, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's from the Northeast, but mm-hmm. I just remember being out there with Pete and watching his car. I mean, he does like a hundred foot wheelie with this third, like it just, they always leave nice. So, yeah. Thanks. It's like the super stock version of a Vega. They just yeah. work. Yeah, absolutely. They do. Like everybody that's got one, they just, Moorhead's got one, Lincoln Moorhead, mm-hmm. real successful with one. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people that Stennett's got one. Like, anyways, they're just a very good combo. So let's throw this over to Todd in Kansas. Had a, had a little bit different take on a converter question. Yeah. I just kind of trying to find a happy medium between converter run on motor that you can spray where it actually moves on the big end versus just actually blowing through it, not going anywhere. Um, I've kind of been on both sides of it and 
can't find the happy medium. This is a good one because like most of the people that go super fast on nitrous, you know, like your top dragster setup, like that's a converter that won't hardly go down the track on motor, you know, like stupid type, right? And the nitrous obviously frees it up. But to your point, I think it can be accomplished because there is a difference or there can be a difference between the stall of the converter and the efficiency of the converter. Because most of us would say the looser the converter, the more inefficient it is. And that's true to an extent. The tighter the converter, the more efficient it is, meaning that it would take that extra horsepower down the racetrack. But what I've learned is that it is possible in today's technology to have a relatively loose converter that is still remarkably efficient. And the answer for me, and I don't mean to advocate for a, a specific manufacturer, but it's just what I'm familiar with, the BTE 10-inch stuff, which is actually a 10-inch converter, which sounds ridiculous. Like Justin always used to make fun of me and ask if I got that 14-inch in there, right? But they've got an 8-inch, it's a 10-inch core, but with 8-inch innards. Like the converter in my dragster, as an example, it goes to like 6,700, which I wouldn't consider tight, but no. it still has the efficiency of like quarter mile I'm crossing at somewhere in the 6 to 7% slippage range, which is pretty efficient. So I, I don't have nitrous on my car, but I think that it would accept that better than that you know, loose converter that's going through at 14% or something like that, where you just drive through it when you hit the button. So I think there are options Definitely. out there for that. Go ahead, Todd. Uh, just definitely because the one converter that I have in it now is my converter that I use for when I ran top dragster and it's definitely efficient. It'll cross quarter mile at four or 5%, but the other ones are 12 to 13%. So, and not efficient at all. Right, right, right. KB, any input there from a different manufacturer side? To really make a difference on the finish line, you're going to have to have a 300 to 500 shot is what most people are spraying on the big end. And to do that, you have to have an efficient converter. It can't be slipping a bunch after the shift. It has to be something that, if I'm not mistaken, I think Greg and them like to, it's got to do with the fin angle and and how, how efficient it is. To me, you can have something that's a little bit looser, but it has to be really efficient to spray something like that. I would say it's probably you're going to have to have something that's probably 6,500 range if you wanted to spray and make a difference. I don't think you could run 68 to 7,000 and be able to turn something big enough to make any difference. And okay. once you get down to like 6,000 or so, that's when it's going to be kind of a turd leaving and it ain't going to like the hot air. So you kind of kill a little bit of your consistency there when you get tied. I would say somewhere in 6,500 range with a, I believe they like to have a positive fin angle at FTI and that way it makes it more efficient. That's definitely what I was running into because I had my nitrous converter in it at the, the beginning of the year, the first race back in April, and it was just deadly. I mean, printed tickets all day. And then last weekend, I really haven't raced that much this year, but last weekend it was kind of all over the place and it would leave and it sit at like 5,400 for a second and then start climbing and it would fall back to 6,000 after the shift. And it just wasn't very efficient at all as far as yeah. consistency. Something like that is going to be hard to be consistent. It, you got to have it on up there like that. It's going to swing a ton with the air if you get that tight. It's definitely got to be, I'd say, at least over 6,000 to have any kind of consistency. Anything tighter than that is going to move a ton with air. Right. I got two comments on this. Uh, one, how big of a shot are you running by? 
I've got a 350 on it. Okay. Well, I've always run like really, really loose converters. So the one thing that I've done to increase, well, I think they're really loose. They go 6,900, 7,000, right? Like 7,000 in good air, you know, 6,850, 6,900 in bad. And, uh, so obviously it doesn't move a lot with an edge. So to increase the efficiency, I always run a converter with a sprag, which I know a lot of people you hear my name. like the devil, right? Like nobody wants to run a sprag and a converter, but to me, it's just like another service item, right? Like a sprag is still going to last hundreds of runs. I mean, I have a converter that I've never ever freshened. It's probably got six or 700 runs on it with a sprag, but mm-hmm. it is a wearable item where if you have a sprag list, I mean, I mean, heck they could probably last just about forever, right? A converter could. So, the one thing is by running a sprag, I learned that it increases the efficiency at the finish line and allows you to spray nitrous even with a really loose converter. And then the other thing, and this is my engineer is an elite member, so it's probably not a, the best thing I say this, but like if I have a really loose converter in the car and let's say I'm spraying 350 and it doesn't pick up what I want it to, I just spray 450 or 500. Like, I mean, at the finish line, I mean, I'm just being honest. Like when you're at the finish line, the motor is under no load. So it's like if you sprayed – 450 at the starting line, the freaking scoop would fall off, you know, blow off the car, right? Blow the carburetor off the top of the thing. But when you're doing it at the finish line under no load at high RPM, it, it, I mean, I've never had a problem with it. So I just spray more to move and uh, whatever. Who really got me out of that was Pete. I remember driving Pete's car one time. I went to the million when I was like probably 19 or 20 years old. And I'm in Pete's dragster and, and it's on alcohol with a belt driven pump. And he says, yeah, the nitrous is ready to go. I said, do I have to turn on a fuel pump? He said, hell, hell no. I just spray it dry 450 right in the freaking plate. Like, I'm thinking if he could do that, why can't I? Like, so anyways, that's what I do. Just run more nitrous. I love the advice. More wiggle. Yeah. Spare more. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're uh, we're leaving KB out of this. We need to get something more into uh, his area of expertise. Anybody want to talk about some down track strategy, some focus? Like, we've been tech heavy, which is cool. But uh, I'm just wondering if anybody has anything uh, more related to the physical driving elements of the car. You guys can post them in the chat or raise a hand up and uh, I'll, I'll weigh in. Oh, I see Rafa going up over there. Here we go, Rafa. Okay. I, I put it on the chat, but I, I will explain it a little bit. I have been practicing this year a lot on, on the practice tree and it is very helpful. But I, have a, a, I think it has a very precise question. Two weeks ago, I was in Guadalajara. And I was very good on Saturdays. Here in Mexico, we have the qualifications on Saturdays, and then we have time trials on Sunday, and then the race on Sunday. On Sunday, because there is a lot of uh, not a lot of uh, cars in a single day. So on Saturday, I was between double five and twenties on my time trials. So I felt very very good with with the numbers of my delay box. But then on Sunday, I had two time trials and I was 004 green and 004 red. Okay. Then I stick to my numbers that, that I had on the delay because I, I made that, that decision. Now it was a bad decision. But then I found, and then I, on second round, I red lighted 006, I think. If my 004 red, I make it. If I put 10 more numbers, I will be green on my second round. So how to change the delay or how to feel okay on, on that day-to-day races? I'm, I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself, but if I was good with, with, with one delay 
on Saturday? Can I change it on, on Sunday? Should I change it because I have these time trials? Or how to feel okay with that? Because I like to be between 005 and 15. I think that is a very a good number to win here in Mexico. Maybe not to race, not to win in the US, you, you need to be double O. But here in Mexico, it is, it's enough. But how to feel comfortable to change that delay from one day to the next day? I don't know if I explain myself. Yeah. No, the only thing that I would say in your explanation is that you, you should have left the end result out because it's really easy for us to give you the answer retroactively. You know what right. I mean? Like, oh, yeah, you should right. have done right? Because we know what happened. But generally speaking, KB, what's your strategy for, for looking at that? If I feel like I'm that set up that tight on Saturday, if it's multiple days on it, I like to set up just a little bit looser. Like you said, 004, going into the next day, I might would set up between like 8 and 12, give myself just a little bit of room where I feel comfortable at. So I'd take that 004 and I'd set at least 8 to 12 range going into the next day. And then after you make the first hit, like consecutive hits, I think you can get a little bit tighter if you feel like you're comfortable and you're hitting the tree well. Then you can kind of get on down to maybe setting up 005. But on the next day hit, I like setting up just a little bit looser, like 8 to 12, and that makes me feel a little more comfortable. That way, if I catch it real good, I'm still green and I'm not I'm not super, super tight on, on that next day. Okay, now, um, which will be, let's say that you have your, your numbers in, and you said, okay, I failed, I was late, which will be the, the worst light that you permit you before change numbers in the delay? If I felt like I was late, I kind of throw it out. But uh, if I felt like I hit it good and I'm getting to the 12 to 15 range and I feel like I, I got it good, then I start to pull back out. But uh, if I feel like I'm missing it, I just throw it out. I don't I don't even consider that run unless I'm, I'm hitting the tree well or know that felt like I hit it well. Okay. I, I was wrong on, on this and this was a an, an language thing. But if you felt that you're okay, but let's say that you made a 30 on the tree. Do you change something? If I was 004 earlier in the weekend with it and I was come back around and I was 30, I would lean more towards the throwing the 30 out that I've missed the tree a little bit, especially okay. if you've made several runs and you've been in a 4 to 15 range there. I would just throw that 30 out. Okay. You throw that and, and you stick with, with your numbers. Yep. I'd go off my best my best hit, and I would set it up 8 to 12 going into the next day where I hadn't made a hit that day. I okay. think this is actually easier in the example that you laid out, Rafa, okay. in that, like, as Kevin just said, like I always tend to go off of my what I would call my best hit of the weekend, my quickest hit of the weekend. So to your point, I don't, if you grouped a bunch together on Saturday that were between you know 005 and 15 and then came out on Sunday and you're 004 and negative four, like I would have no problem putting 100th in because I'm covering that best reaction time and that just happened, right? Okay. Where I struggle and I think most of us struggle is when it goes the opposite direction, which you had alluded to just a minute ago, to where you group that good range 005 to 15 together Saturday and then Sunday you come out and in two runs you think you hit it twice and you're 20 and 24. Like in that instance, I think it's harder to pull it because I still have my best quickest hit in mind. And I don't know necessarily that that's right or wrong, but I would have to prove it to myself more often 
that I need to pull the delay out. Whereas if I went red once, it would automatically go in and I would cover it. You know what I mean? Like, again, I don't know that that's necessarily right or wrong, but that's the way that historically I would approach that. Okay. Right, what else we got, guys? Anybody else chomping at the bit to uh, to throw something out for conversation before we wrap this up tonight? Do you want me to just ask a question on behalf of the world for Kevin? By all means, this could get juicy. I got two questions. What do you think about logbooks? And why and how do you execute holding? You can ignore the logbook question. That's for me and Luke. Why do you uh, choose to and how do you execute holding so much, specifically eighth mile? And, and this is totally serious because I can't tell you how many people I've had since being involved with Elite that are like, man, like, how does he do it? Like, they seriously want to know. Like, I mean, you'll be holding seven, eight, nine hundred to the eighth. And, and uh, I guess what is your theory there? And, and, and how do you keep track of what you've gotten rid of? Does that make sense? Before you answer, KB, I'm going to take your defense. Justin, I'll have you know that KB came by the trailer in Martin and asked if I had, like, what was it, four or five logbooks? We're turning over a new leaf. Maybe he was selling those out the back of his trailer. <laughs> All right, KB, how do we hold a ton? Uh, the reason that I find behind it is because when I struggle the most is on a wider track. I feel like on, on something that's narrow, I like the three to four hunters because I honestly think that I've done it enough that I can go down the track by myself, kill four hunters and go dead on because I know at what point that I can start ripping how my car reacts to that. I think I can kill four hunters with nobody beside of me. But the reason when I get on up to more than that typically is because I'm on a wider track and I catch myself getting behind a little bit. That's when, like Darlington, for instance, super wide. I feel like my whole three or four, I feel like I'm getting there and I'm not actually getting there. So sometimes I'll go on up seven or eight. I like to get there, get up on them earlier and that way I can see it better. The sooner you get there to me, looking out the front window is easier to make a decision. Sir, as the, as the faster car in most cases, does that strategy change much when you're getting chased, Kevin? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think it's back to you have to hold a comfortable number. For me, like, most of the time, my comfortable number is 400s. And then if I go out there and I know I'm holding four and I go to ripping the gas and I kill five on a consistent basis, sometimes I'll go on up to five. Whatever I can kill and consistently kill the dead on is how much I, I try to hold. Like if I, like my Monza, for instance, it's more in the Monza. I rip the gas, the converter's tighter, it kills more, it kills the momentum. So sometimes in the end, I'll go seven or eight. It's just whatever I can comfortably start killing and do it consistently. That's an amount you feel like you can be pretty precise with in terms of like push come to shove, you can match the number on the scoreboard. Exactly. Like if I'm running somebody, just say for instance, Mikey Bloomfield, he's over there holding a bunch with me. I can make my look, see where he's at, know that he's way too far out in front of me. I can consistently start looking back and killing to dead on. There's a good spot there for me to get to dead on it, regardless of what he's doing. I think we had a question here from uh, from Mike. Mike, you got something you want to weigh in on? I think uh, you guys just touched on what I was mostly – I've been the king of breaking out by 2000 this year, just taking too much stripe, and uh, I don't want to show you my time tickets of some of these, but if you guys have any tips on being the uh, slower car, and which I'm a lot in Super Pro, and in Mod, I'm a lot of times the faster car, but – I'm just taking way too much stripe a lot of times and uh, not tightening it up. I'm almost uh, wondering, uh, my stuff's pretty good this year, so I'm thinking maybe go back to the dialer sometimes might be the way to go. I don't know. But, uh, Mike, 
do you see much correlation in terms of, because you'd mentioned both sides of it, right? You say you've given it back a thousand or two a couple of times and taken more stripe than you wanted to or, or more one than the other? I'm usually dialed one or two, like I'm holding one or two. I seem to uh, make my decision way too late a lot of times. And that's when I, I, I know what to do, but I'm not doing it quick enough. Sure. When you take too much stripe, is that typically or more commonly as the slower car or more commonly as the faster car? Usually when I'm the slower car. Okay. Yeah. There's just a lot of different ways to, to kind of unpeel this onion, but I will say that I don't think, I want to say that you're not unique in that, but I find that I have the exact same tendency as you. Like I, the best way that I can explain it, Mike, is that I tend to overestimate the momentum of the faster car whether that is me or my opponent so that means that when i'm the faster car i have a tendency to get a few thou behind thinking that i was comfortably in front and when i'm the slower car i have a tendency to take 20 30 at the finish line when i thought i made it really close like both ways it seems like i overestimate the momentum of the faster car and i don't have a great reason why i do that I've done it for 20 years, so do you know what I do? Like, I just compensate, meaning that as the faster car, like, I, I look over pre-stage and get, you know, I'm a 90-degree driver, like I've des described before, so I look over and I've got my spot on my opponent's car. As a faster car, like, I physically tell myself, like, you have to be comfortably ahead of that. Like, I try to get a foot in front of that in my mind, and that's pretty close. Conversely, when I'm getting chased, if I make it what I think is a tie – I usually get there a little bit, you know what I mean? Because that's just the way that I see it. And I don't have any explanation as to why, but I've, I've raced long enough to learn like that's me. And I trust it to where I, I try to mask it and compensate. And the other layer of this is to your point, what is the, the reasoning or the thought process behind dialing up one to two on a consistent basis? Like what is your, what's your strategy behind that? And what's the reasoning? Probably mostly that's just what I like to practice my driving skills with. And uh, if I'm late, I possibly have some other alternative choices to make. That's usually why. I really haven't been the dialer in probably a couple of years, really. I've always been holding one or two just to uh, – it's worked pretty sure. well. No, and I mean there's but, a significant advantage to disguising that reaction time. You know, yes. on the runs where you're late, but conversely, it also on the runs where you're good or better than your opponent on the tree, like it makes your job harder because now there's another end of the racetrack too. You know what I mean? That if you dial hard, like that eliminates basically, it doesn't eliminate, right. makes it harder to screw up. Yeah. So specifically, like you say that you typically got a really good race car and on the days where you feel really good on the tree, like I'm not against dialing honest at all. Yeah. But it's also a matter in my mind of having the self-awareness to say, you know, for whatever reason, like I'm not grouping them together today or I don't have a ton of confidence on the tree this round. And that's the time to dial up a couple just to mask it and be safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to, I just think right. that we all have a tendency to get too locked into strategy. And I think that the best racers are more fluid with it from round to round. Like be honest, this round will be dialed up to next round. And, and back and forth, depending on what the situation dictates. Um, Kevin or Justin, you got anything to add? We got something coming up pretty soon that I think is going to benefit you there. Uh, we, we got a calculator. We're getting ready to add to it. And it's something that's going to help you 
you figure out this closing rate. It's a it's a deal that we go behind that I go back and look for. Sometimes when I when I see a race and it doesn't picture out exactly what I thought it was, I thought I was getting there or I thought he was coming wherever it may be. Um, we're breaking the numbers down and it's going to kind of help you a little bit to see what's going on too. You're going to be able to enter your numbers in there, go back and look at it and say, okay, well at the, at the three thirty, I was three hundreds behind and then at the finish line or at the mile cones, I was Oh one five behind and then at stripe. So I think that's going to be something that's going to help you a little bit. It's all about just getting familiar and comfortable with the closing rate. And, and this is going to help you guys a lot. I believe I think you're going to like it. Jay, very good. Yeah, the only thing that I would add, when I'm getting chased and I'm holding, I tend to want to keep my speed up, if that makes sense. So, like, let's just say uh, you leave the starting line and you know you had a good light, you know you hit it, you know you're going under, whatever you want to call it. So you're going three under. I want to try to get rid of 100 or two fairly early in the run, let's say eight, 900, 1,000 feet, somewhere in that range. That being that you can keep your speed up so you're going – closer to their speed does that make sense if you try to wait and kill it all very late if you're already getting chased by 15 mile an hour now you're just going to make it like 30 and it's really hard to see you really don't know if you're getting there first second and you know you're just killing it all late so for me i just try to kill it earlier at least a portion of it earlier now that being said if i miss it and now all of a sudden i just you know more or less want to hope they break out kind of thing then i'll absolutely spot drop and you know just try to get to my number but if I wanted, like, if I know I got a good line, I want to take the stripe, I have a better chance of seeing it keeping my momentum up. And how do you specifically do that? And I assume that's just with throttle rips early in the round. Yeah. yeah, throttle now, I would agree with that. I think there's way too many of us that wait too long to make that decision. And specifically, like, the situation that Justin just outlined, like, you're confident that you're going under, you're confident that you hit the tree, but you're going to have to get rid of it anyway. So what's the harm in killing a little bit early, assuming that you can keep that momentum up. Right. Okay. And how many guys use the 90 degree versus other sort of methods to uh, judge the stripe? Because I'm not really a hundred percent comfortable cranking my head over 90 degrees and I don't even know where, like you do it at the mile an hour cone or for that, like I'm always looking right in the mirrors and cranking my head around. But, uh, Sometimes it's so fast, you know? Yeah, I really um, think if you, like, polled I just wanted the, the, the 10 best finish line drivers that you know, you'd probably get six different answers. I'm a 90-degree guy. Like, it, it's easier right. for me, but I realize it takes some yeah. adjustment. KB and Justin, what are, you, what are you guys looking at down track? When I'm getting run down like that, I'm crank, I turn around as far as I can see. I take a look. Typically, by the 330, I've already made one look. Ultimately, I end up at the 90 degree. I'm, I'm looking back over my shoulder, look back at my shoulder. And when I end up getting ready to go through the finish line, I end up right at a 90 degree angle is what I'm like. Yeah, I think ultimately you're going to end up, if you're close in ET, I feel like I end up at 90 degrees if I'm not, which is like in stock and super stock is more the case because, you know, you got a big differentiate, you know, differential in ET. Like let's say in my super stock, I'm going 860 and I'm racing guy going 11 seconds. I'm never going to get to 90 degrees with that guy ever. So I really think it's an ET thing. When you're running super comp and majority of the class is within like this 10 or 15 mile hour window, well, yeah, you can get to 90 degrees pretty easy. Or even bracket racing, you know, most of the cars go from 450 to 470, let's call it, you can get there. But when you, so I think it really just depends on what you're driving. Like when I drive a dragster, I tend to go more 90 degrees, but 
because I in dragster classes they simply know similar ET. Where door car stuff, it seems like the ETs are spread out a lot more. Right. Last uh, last topic, we'll throw it over to uh, J- JT up in uh, Pennsylvania, and we'll kind of close this out for tonight. So, uh, JT, it sounds like you're beating your head up against the wall here. What 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 are we fighting against? <laughs> yeah, I kind of can, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, my car uh, started out the year it was really good. I the last time it was good was about a month ago, and it has progressively gotten worse and. I cannot predict the thing at all. At first, I thought it was like something little, like maybe the carb or something like that. But yesterday, I was at Quaker City, and the thing swung like eight hundreds in like le- in like an hour, like an hour and a half, an hour and fifteen minutes. And uh, on Saturday at Quaker City, the the weather was fairly consistent. You know, like a, the guy I was pitted with, he was he maybe varied a hundredth and over a couple hour period and I, I swung, I went from like, I think I swung like I swung a 10th on Saturday. That's eight yeah. Mile. Eighth mile. Yeah. Like breaking it down incrementally. Where was the car moving? Was it in, in 60 foot more down track or what, what specific incremental or did anything stand out? The car, when it was really good, it would vary maybe four thou over the course of an entire race day. I think when I run it up the Sportsman Spectacular, it, uh, I think it varied 4,000 over like 12 hours in the 60 foot. Yesterday, it swung a whole hundredth. And then the 330 was swinging like four numbers, four or five numbers. And then by the time I was getting to the eighth, it was, it went, it, it made its slowest pass ever, which was a 665. And then it came, it, it came back a tenth to a 655 wow i think i think it would yeah and feel anything in the car i mean like a like a surge or a miss or anything stupid no i can't it's it's kind of weird i I, i'm i'm kind of at a loss like because like i said it started out like over the last four weeks you know like it was swinging a hundredth here and there this is power glide equipped bracket car yeah like 3200 pound car um, alcohol or gas alcohol I actually, uh, I tried, uh, I, I was fortunate a buddy of mine has a, a real similar carb to mine. I bolted it on cause I thought it was a carb thing at first and the car did run, I guess I'll, I'll say clean. It, it ran more clean. Like it, it wasn't using fuel as much and it wasn't burning my eyes or anything. So there was something up with my carb, like the floats were heavy or something. And I sent that back to get it fixed, but I put a, a known good carburetor on it and it, and it, you know, it built heat fine and, and it ran well and it, le- it seemed like it was leaving okay and stuff. And, but I can't even like, usually if it, like you could, f- like, I- I'd say like, I-, I take that back. I said it swung a, a hundredth in the 60. It swung, it swung almost two hundredths in the 60. And I couldn't tell a difference in the car. Usually I could tell if it like really picks, like if it hits the tires harder you can feel it in the car because it, it doesn't do like a great big wheelie. So like if it goes from like 146 to 144, it's like noticeable in the car. And I'm kind of leaning towards like my converter and tranny. They're both, they got like 60 passes on them, but I'm kind of thinking maybe it's a converter. I was just wondering if anybody else agrees with that. Um, I mean, I'm obviously going to have to start checking a lot of stuff. It's, it's just weird because it doesn't, cause one day it, you know, it started out 
it was the slowest pass it had made to that point, and then it got slower, and then it picked back up a tenth. And then the, yesterday, it ran the same as it did the first pass on Saturday, and it picked up seven hundreds on the second pass. So it's not even consistent which way it's going, heat or anything like that. Yeah, that's odd. Because um, I would and, say, like, moving 200 to 60 obviously isn't what you want. No. But that's not, that's not, that doesn't add up to a tenth at the finish line. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I think the, the, the greater issue is further down the track. And I don't know exactly how to pinpoint, but I think you're in the right area. Like, to me, this sounds like it has to be something drivetrain related, like transmission or converter, probably more so converter, I would, I would lean toward. Justin, KB, you any thoughts? And, and I should mention the car does have the tires are fresh. My shock settings have all been, I haven't really played with them a whole lot. I haven't changed too much. I would just kind of like checking, like tuning things to make sure. And I'm kind of at a loss right now because it, it's, it's like, I'm going to say from like the Sportsman Spectacular and up until about last week. I had been hitting the tree the best I probably have since I've been racing like consistently. So like I, I've been band-aiding it a little bit by holding and, and, and hitting the tree, but I was so screwed up this weekend. I was all over the place. I was just frustrated. So I'm kind of at my breaking point now. You said uh, it was, I, sorry. You said it was moving around with, with uh, your buddy's carburetor on there too. It was making, it was still making those big swings with the other carburetor. Yeah, I definitely feel like that carburetor was actually running better with it with my buddy's carburetor on it. Like it, it, I think my floats and stuff were, you know, it must have been saturated from alcohol. So I just sent it back to Rupert to get it freshened up. But that uh, wasn't it, obviously the cure to the problem. Consistently, no, I, right? yeah, it, yeah, I, I kind of thought, well, because until this weekend, it had only, you know, moved around a couple hundreds, which I could work with, you know, like I, I could kind of predict, hey, it's probably going to slow down. I'll, I think it's going to slow down one or two. I'll hold four, but I tried doing that. I I, I tried doing that and it, it picked up a ten. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're holding twelve, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, and yeah. Go, go <laughs> and ahead, then, Justin. You were going to pipe in with something a minute ago. I just think it's something drive. It's got to be something drivetrain related. Like, I, and I mean, could it be like? brakes hanging up like you got a caliper that needs to be rebuilt maybe it's sticking and one run it sticks next run it doesn't like is there abnormal wear and brake pads or the brake pads look fine i did have an issue the weekend after i runnered up the sportsman spectacular i had um uh, the bolts that hold the hats to the rotors ba uh, started backing out they start grinding in the caliper bracket so i re but i replaced everything so it's actually I think I took care of that issue and then something, you know, I don't know. I never messed with the front brakes. Maybe I should check them too. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I jacked it up and spun the wheels. I'm not noticing any unusual sticking or anything. The car rolls real free. Like if, if I'm in the staging lanes, you know, if I was in neutral it rolls, cause I, I kind of like went through an effort to make sure my car rolls real free. Like I, I try to your guy, but I wonder if it could be like, rear gear related like could it be if it's trying to if like the gears get worn out could, could it change from run to run wouldn't it just be slow all the time I, i'm not sure yeah the yeah. only thing i could think of outside of and, and again like i'm not technically minded enough to say like it is this in the converter that's causing that like i don't understand how it could go back and forth 
But outside of like the transconverter area, the only thing I could think of that would do something like this that wouldn't show up, you know, in terms of rolling resistance or something like that. And I would think if you got an issue like in the front brakes, you would feel it in terms of driving, like it would try to drive one way. But I just wonder if it's possible, like something is allowing timing to move dramatically. Like that would be the only other explanation I could think of, like cam walk or, you know, something crazy, like moving, I would think like. 10 plus degrees on a run. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that's even realistic, but that's the only other thing I could think of that could cause that big a swing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I run your, I just run a 7AL and with a locked out distributor. And, and I guess I could check and see if it's bouncing around at all. Check, you know, check it with a timing light. But I, yeah, I just put it on a light and run it through the RPM train just to make sure, like say cam walk or something goofy like that. I, I don't, uh, but like, I, to me, the engine's making the same amount of power unless it's something like that. You know what I mean? And you can almost eliminate yeah. that variable. Yeah, and it, it doesn't seem like – it seems like the engine isn't the problem because it seems like it's running well. It's real crisp and responsive like it always has been. Yeah, something somewhere holding it back. Yeah, yeah. I I guess I'm going to have to – I guess I can check the rear end and check the tranny start – you know, check the transmission pan, see if I find any metal or anything that would give me an idea. I just didn't know if maybe somebody, you know, had another idea to suggest besides I thought about the brake things too, but I kind of, I don't have any problem bumping the car in. You know, if I hit the brakes, it doesn't pull one way or the other. If you've got a comparable converter, I would start there. I, that would be my, my guess. Yeah. I, I do have another converter that I can try. I don't know how I just had this one. I just got this one. And when I, I, it seemed like it was the change I was looking for, like on like as far as the car leaving the starting line, it was leaving a little harder and it made it seem like it made my reaction time where I wanted it. Like it, like I had a good sweet spot. And so I kind of hope it's not it, but, but in a way I kind of hope it is. So I can just fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <for> sure. <laughs> like I said, the tranny, I, I broke, a, I broke this converter and my other transmission at some point last year around the, you know, the end of the season, I just happened to catch it when I went to do, you know, winterize the car, you know, do some winter maintenance on it and stuff. So I put my, my backup trans in, which was brand new. And I sent the converter that was in it out and had it matched for the combo. So this stuff only has like 60 runs on it. I really think it's like Luke said, I, I feel like it's in the converter, but I do, I do like his opinion, check the time and make sure it moved. Mm-hmm. It could be, I've even seen on small box before it be in the balancer itself. It's trying to shear the key off and move and the timing around. So check it and see if your timing's moved. If your timing's moved, it's like he said, it could either be in the, the lockout of the distributor or the cam gears wearing out, or even as could be possibly the balancer trying to shear the key off and moving. Another thing I would check too, I don't think it's it because you said it's coming and going, but check your fuel filter too, just to make sure, since you said you did feel like it's laying over, it's probably not that, but check your fuel filter and just make sure it ain't clogged yeah. up or anything. Yeah, I actually have uh, my fuel pressure gauge mounted on um, my uh, cow panel and I it's actually in my line of sight going down the track and I haven't noticed any fuel pressure bouncing around either, but I'll check it just to be safe. You never know. Of course, you know, like when when you're trying to drive the finish line, I'm not really paying attention to the fuel pressure. <laughs> I really don't really care at that point if it's got seven pounds or nine. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
understand. JT, thanks for uh, throwing that out there. Hopefully, something we gave you will provide the key that you're looking for to get back on track. I know how frustrating that can be. Guys, I just uh, want to say how much I appreciate you guys all joining me tonight. I hope we got to everything. I think there might be a question or two left unanswered, but we're going to wrap this up. So we will follow up with those in the Facebook community. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. Thank you, KB and Justin, for your time. Appreciate you guys being a part of Elite. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. All right. If you have made it this far into the show, I want to say thank you for listening. I hope that you got something from that discussion that you can apply to your own racing program. Now, if you like this platform and you're intrigued by this ability to share and discuss your own personal racing program, your issues, your struggles with not only our instructors, multi-time world champions, Justin Lamb, Kevin Brandon, myself, but also with a growing community of racers who share a similar goal, I would encourage you to check out thisisbracketracing.com slash elite today. Now remember, open enrollment is only available for a brief period of time from July the 26th, that's a Friday, through Saturday August the 3rd. Now, if and when you join This Is Bracket Racing Elite, Elite members get access to our incredible library of training resources. Everything that is offered on thisisbracketracing.com, that's 350 plus trainings on reaction time, finish line, tech, the mental game, super class competition, bottom ball racing, and more. Now, that may sound overwhelming, right? There's a lot there. It's not overwhelming. The information is all there whenever you want it, whenever you need it. But it's not as if you have to dedicate five hours a week to get the most out of this as Bracket Racing Elite. It's more about quality than it is for quantity. Pick out what applies directly to you. and We can assist you in doing so. And then uh, apply it to your racing game. Take action. Our staff, our members, we can direct you to the most appropriate resources to fit your individual needs. So if you need help on the starting line, we've got it in spades. And once you strengthen that muscle and you start messing up at the finish line, 
we can help you there too. Then suddenly your car won't run two of anything. Well, we have resources that can direct you to the right place to start. As an elite member, you'll know that the material is there and easy to find whenever you need it. And if you run into an issue that you cannot find an answer toward, for or that we maybe we have not touched on yet within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, you'll know that you can ask an authority and or members of the community and get real answers from people that you trust. Now, what if, this is probably the most common question that I get among racers interested in joining our community, what if you join This Is Bracket Racing Elite only to realize that, hey, this really wasn't for me? There's no long-term commitment, okay? Membership in our community is month to month. Our billing is extremely transparent. It's done through PayPal. You can easily cancel your membership at any time. In fact, we send multiple emails to new members with the link to do just that if you're not 100% satisfied and it doesn't absolutely fit your needs. So becoming a member is easy. Being a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite is easy. And if you ever decide that you want to leave, well, that's easy too. So if you're ready to transform into the best version of yourself on the racetrack, each and every time that you stage, we would love to help you. Let's be honest, you dedicate so much time, money, energy to our sport, right? I mean, you're almost two hours into this podcast. If that's not a reflection of your passion, I don't know what is. You deserve to put your best foot forward on a consistent basis. This is Bracket Racing Elite can provide the tools, the community, and the accountability to help you get to where you want to be. Learn more and join at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning it. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again. 
on December the 8th.